So how many of you have ever asked someone to pray for you or someone has asked you to pray for them? Does that happen? It does. It happens. And, and you know, that happens to me on a regular basis. And to be honest, sometimes I'm not exactly sure uh, how to pray in a helpful and meaningful way. I know in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, but in everything by prayer, bring your request to the Lord. We also know in 1 Thessalonians, it says, pray without ceasing. We even learn in Colossians that Paul prayed for the church. He didn't cease to pray for them. And in Colossians 4.2, he even said, hey, devote yourself to prayer. So we know what the, the Word of God says about prayer, right? That we always need to be praying and praying for everything. But I found that it's always easier said than done, right? So several years ago, as I was reading through the New Testament, I noticed that, uh, that in many of Paul's letters, he wrote something like this. He would write, Since I heard of your faith in Jesus, I do not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then he would follow that up with a list of things that he was praying about. And that generally had to do with spiritual things. So I made a list of those prayers, and I started carrying it around with me in my Bible so that I had something to use when somebody asked me to pray for them. And I actually had it included in the bulletin because I found that it was helpful, and so hopefully you can take it with you and use it. One prayer that I often pray is from today's text, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. So if you would turn there, hopefully most of you are already there, but as you're turning, just a little bit of a background uh, as we get started. In my opinion, it kind of feels like this passage starts with the end in mind and then is supported by the rest of the book of Colossians. It's like Paul's hypothesis and then he spends the rest of the letter supporting this idea. The church at Colossae was started by Epaphras, or at least he was the pastor there. And at the time the epistle was written, it was a relatively new church that was made up of both Jews and Greeks. But we learn in Colossians 1, 5 through 8, that they received the word of truth, the gospel, and it was bearing fruit, and it was increasing. And the results were that they had the love of the Spirit, and we see that they had love for the saints. And these are marks of true saving faith. But however, think about the dynamics of such a church. As both Jews and Greeks were being saved, they were bringing with them their Here's a, here's a word, Weltanschauung. And for you Cedarville people, that was a word that we learned in uh, Foundations, I believe. Was it Foundations of Social Science? It's world and life view. Always wondered what that word meant, and I had to look it up. So as the Jews and the Greeks were being added to the church, they were bringing their ideas with them that led to heresies or false teaching that threatened the church. In fact, if you look over here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. 
So the, the, the heresies embraced aspects of, there, there were multiple things happening, but one of them was this idea that became known as Gnosticism, which was uh, a heresy that the early church had to work through. And it all has to do with this idea of knowledge. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, hence the word Gnosticism. And they taught that God was good, matter was evil, but Jesus was an emanation from God and not fully God. And that a secret higher knowledge above Scripture was necessary for enlightenment and salvation. That's thanks to John MacArthur. I just stole that right from him. <laughs> there was also Jewish legalism. And they had this, this, this activity called asceticism, which is basically a harsh treatment of your body. Um, it's uh, severe self-discipline. And then they were also worshiping angels. So as a result of these heresies, it appears that Epaphras, the pastor, needed some counsel. So he went to uh, Rome to visit Paul, who just happened to be in prison. And we see in Colossians 4, verse 7, that Tychius, um, along with Onesimus, who was the slave of Philemon, apparently delivered this, these letters to the church. We see in Colossians 4.12, it says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. And apparently Epaphras remained behind, but we see that he was praying for the church. If we were to look in Colossians Chapter 1, verse 3, we see that Paul was always praying for the church. And in Colossians 1, 9, our text, it says, since the day he heard of their faith, he didn't cease to pray for them. So we learn from the book of Colossians through Paul and Epaphras and even Timothy and the others meeting that they were praying for the church. And just so you know, that's important. We as pastors, every month when we get together, we pray for this church, we Pray for each one of you individually. You get prayed for. So within this context of praying for one another and praying for the church, let's go back to today's passage. So here's the title. A true knowledge of Jesus Christ leads to joyful living. And like any good sermon, you need three points, right? So point one is to know Jesus. Point two is to live right. And point three is to find joy. So let's go here to our text and let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. All right, so here we see that they were praying for the church. What, what were they praying? That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This idea of being filled. So what's filled? It's to be full. It means that there's no more room. And I can think of no better analogy than a five-gallon bucket, which is like redneck gold, right? <laughs> so think about it. You get a bucket, and you can go purchase this empty, brand-new bucket, and you can fill it up. Or, like me, you get a bucket that had something in it, you dump it out, and you fill it back up. You know, I like to, th to think of the idea that our Christian lives are kind of like the second use. 
See, Paul says we were dead in our transgressions and that he, Christ, dumped it out and replaced it with himself, making us complete. In fact, Colossians 2.2 says that we can have a full assurance. Colossians 1.22 says that he will present, present us holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, meaning he's, he's emptied the bucket of our lives and he's replaced it with himself. So it's this idea of being filled with what? With the knowledge of his will. So in my study, I ran across two different types of knowledge. And so in order to try to understand it, let's look at Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look in verse 2 and 3. And, and, and I know that verse 2 kind of picks it up in the middle of a thought. But we're going to pick it up here. It says that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in, here's the first one, true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Now verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, so in these verses we're presented with two words for knowledge, a true knowledge in verse 2, and then in verse 3, it's knowledge, but it's paired with wisdom. <clears throat> so I want to focus on knowledge from verse 3, the one that's paired with wisdom. So I already said that the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, where they get the word Gnosticism. And basically, that just means to know stuff. It's head knowledge. It's general knowledge. It's seeking to know, to inquire, to investigate. And apparently that's where we get our word science, which is investigation. It's concerned with our intellect, not so much character. And it's the things we learn going through life. We, we all learn in, in many ways. But let's look at the context of this idea of knowledge in chapter 2, verse 3. It's paired with wisdom. And both wisdom and knowledge are called a hidden treasure that comes from God. You see, that would be contrary to this teaching of Gnosticism that said only the enlightened can find and receive knowledge. You see, both wisdom and knowledge are from God and we see this in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, that says, Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, I think it's on the screen, but if you would turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I, I am preaching today from the New American Standard, so I realize that many of you are probably ESV, but... NASB is just where I've landed over the years. So just bear with me as, as I read here. And I'm going to pick this up in verse 5. It says, Now for this very reason also apply all diligence in your faith. Supply what? Moral excellence. Into your moral excellence, knowledge. Here's this idea of knowing. And to your knowledge, self-control. And to your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, Love, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in 
true knowledge. So here we see uh, that the virtues mentioned above, including knowledge, help us with the second kind of knowledge called true knowledge. And this is the kind of knowledge then that you see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, when it says true knowledge. And it's also the same word used in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, even though it doesn't say in my translation true knowledge, that's what that word is. Now, this is a little bit different play on the word gnosis. This has a a word called epi in front of it, epigenosis, which means it's basically a true knowledge or a real knowledge. It's the full and comprehensive knowledge of who Jesus is. It's about knowing Jesus from the heart that leads to action, right? So the first type of knowledge was more just, just head knowledge, where this knowledge is more of a heart knowledge. So to help us understand true knowledge, and bear with me as we work through this, let's go back to Colossians chapter 2, verse uh, 2. In this verse, we learn that true knowledge is a mystery, is understanding a mystery, and it says of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. So the mystery is Jesus, the deity of Jesus. And we see that in Colossians 2, 9, that says... For in him all the fullness of deity dwells. And then if you back up to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Okay, I know I've given you a lot, but let's go down to Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul, Paul is always making sentences, or at least whoever put the verses in, uh, pick it up mid-sentence, but verse 26 says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past, ages and generations, but has now been made manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is that mystery? It is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the Old Testament predicted the coming of the Messiah and that Gentiles would partake in salvation. But it didn't speak about Christ living within each member of the church, made up primarily of Gentiles. You see, that was the mystery, Christ living in us, and also the deity of Christ. But every time we see the word true knowledge, the object is Jesus. Colossians 3.10 says, There's a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. Ephesians 1.17 talks about the true knowledge of him. Philemon 1.6 says a true knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ. And 2 Peter 1.3 says there's a true knowledge of him. So every time we see true knowledge, it points back to Jesus. But then if we go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, it says the knowledge of his will. We often ask, well, what's God's will? Well, let's go back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27 and 20, 28. It says, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what's this mystery that Christ 
lives within you the hope of glory. And then we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. So I would say that God's will, his purpose is to bless mankind, right? God's will is his purpose to bless mankind through Christ. And then you may be asking, well, what's God's will for us? Well, if you look over here to Colossians 4, verse 12, at the end of what Epaphras was praying, he said that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. But if I had to sum up God's will for our lives, I think I'd use 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. It says this, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human lusts, but for the will of God. So we're to be filled with the true knowledge of his will in what? Spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see this word spiritual, it's, it's a word that shows up after Pentecost and it's related to things of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that in Life Group or Sunday School this morning, Acts chapter 1. So that must mean then that wisdom and understanding come from the Lord. And we see here in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, that they're a hidden treasure, or they're a treasure of the Lord. So what's wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to accumulate and organize principles from Scripture. Colossians 3, well, and I just said that, Colossians 3, 2 says that they're a hidden treasure from God. What do we know from James 1, 5? It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God which reminds me of Proverbs 1.3 1, that says that we receive instruction in wise behavior. That's what Proverbs is for. Colossians 1.28 says we proclaim him with all wisdom. Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom as you teach and admonish. And Colossians 4.5 says conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. So wisdom is the, the accumulation and organizing of principles from Scripture. But then it talks about understanding. Understanding is where we get our word synthesis, and it means a running together. It's, it's almost like rivers when they join and they run together. It's the application of biblical truth to our daily living. That's what understanding is. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.7 says, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. And in Colossians 1.6, we see that the church, the believers, understood the gospel and the grace of God, and they had a full assurance of understanding. In short, we see from Colossians that they applied biblical truth to their lives. So that was point one, and that was to know Jesus. Not just a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge, a true knowledge. And then that leads us to point two, which is to live right. To live right. And this is where wisdom and understanding are applied. All right, so we're given four statements here, and we're going to go down into verse 10, and let me read that. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all things, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's this idea of walking. That's just how we live and conduct our lives. And how do we do that? 
in a manner worthy, in a way that's suitable to the Lord. Philippians 1.27 says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. Ephesians 4.1 says, walk in a manner worthy. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, so walk in him. Colossians 4, verse 5 says, conduct, which is another word for walk, with wisdom. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, it's given the idea of running aimlessly, right? That's not what we want to do. We want to walk with a purpose. It talks about discipline, walking in a disciplined life, in a disciplined manner. So we walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. So what are some practical applications from Colossians on how we walk in a manner worthy? Well, look over here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, that Paul says, I rejoice to see your good discipline and stability in your faith. Just our stable walk, just the stability that we have in our life is a manner worthy. We look over here in Colossians 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above in our thinking. And then we walk in a manner worthy with our words. In Colossians 3, 16, it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. So, we looked at walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. The next one is to please Him in all things. This idea of pleasing, I could... I started thinking of kids. So how many times do kids, if you have kids, look at you and say, hey, dad, or hey, mom, watch this, or look at me, right? Kids want to please their parents. And that's just what this is talking about, is pleasing the Lord. Hebrews 13, 21 says that he will equip us in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says that therefore it is our ambition to be pleasing to him. So what are, the, what are the practical applications to please the Lord that we see here in Colossians? Well, let's look over here at Colossians chapter 3 starting in verse 18. And I would say we please the Lord in our relationships. Here in verse 18 we talks about wives, verse 19, husbands, verse 20, children, verse 21, fathers, verse 22, slaves or employees. And you go down to chapter 4, verse 1, it says masters, I suppose employers. But let's go back to verse 20. It says, children, be obedient to your parents in the Lord, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. You see, just in relationships, we're pleasing to the Lord. And for all of you kids sitting in here, just obedience to your parents not only pleases your parents, but ultimately it pleases the Lord. And that was just, we were pretty simple raising kids, and one of them was just, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? Because this is right, and it's well-pleasing with him. Pretty simple. Free parenting advice right there. And then we can please the Lord in our work. Verse 23 of chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. You get this idea of heartily as a pleasing manner. Okay, let's drop down to the third thing that, we're, that we can do to please the Lord, and that's bearing fruit in every good work. 
These two go together because bearing fruit are the, the results of our life. It's, I heard a guy say this. I don't know if I fully understand it, but I like it. Proof is in the pudding. Sounds good, right? Proof is in the pudding. That's what fruit, that's what fruit is. That's, that's the result of our Christian lives. Colossians 1 says that, that, that the church in Colossae, they were bearing fruit. If you go over here with, to Colossians chapter 3, in verse 12 and following, it says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. Down to verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. When I read that, that sounds a lot like the fruit of the spirits, doesn't it? Bearing fruit in every good work. So what's this idea of work? It's where we get our English word ergonomics, the laws of work. And it means our actions and our deeds. Now, I'm not talking about the Adam Sandler Mr. Deeds, okay? Remember that movie? These are the deeds and the work, the things that we do for the Lord. Now, this word, in my day... We'd use it for hard things like, or when something hard happened, we go, oh, work me. Man, I just got worked. Okay, remember that? I'm seeing some of you my age kind of nodding your head. Today, I suppose it's slay me. Slay me. And my response is, work me. Interestingly enough, that happens all the time at our house. So my daughter, Kate, is... Her fiancé is Caleb. <laughs> She's going to kill me for saying this. She calls him Slaylib, her fiancé. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But anyway, I digress. I just couldn't help it. <laughs> All right, back to this idea of work. Work, up, work me, right? Um, it's our deeds. It's the things we do. In fact, in Colossians 1, Paul says, listen... Before you came to Christ, you were alienated and engaged in evil deeds. But Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father. We see the opposite, right? Before Christ, we had evil deeds. After Christ, they're good works. And then in Colossians 3.17, it says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord. And then this brings us down to the final point here of, uh, of, of these four things that we see. And the, the final one is increase in the knowledge of God. And it's from the Greek word where we get our, the English word oxen, A-U-X-I-N, meaning to grow or increase. In plants, oxens are hormones that promote cell growth and elongation. Okay, now you see the connection. When we apply this thinking to our spiritual lives, it has to do with growing in Christ. In fact, in Colossians 2.19, it says, and let's go over here because Paul likes to use human anatomy to make a point. And in chapter 2, verse 19, and he was saying that they were not holding fast to the head with whom the entire body being supported and held together by joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. So we see that this increase and in, in growing in God comes from him. Ephesians 4.15 4, says that we are to grow up in every way unto the head who is Christ. 
So that's grow. And then what are we supposed to grow in? Well, this brings it right back full circle to this idea of true knowledge, the knowledge that we saw in verse 9, the true knowledge. So that was point two, to live right. So if we truly know Christ, we'll live right because of our love for him, which brings us to our, to our third point, is to find joy. Now, my, my translation says joyously, and it's at the end of verse 11, and then it goes right into verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. This idea of joyously means to have joy in the midst of meaning that we have joy in the midst of life as we go. James 1.22 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials. So finding joy in the trials of life. But, but why should we have joy? Well, let's, look, let's just look at Colossians chapter 1 and see the good things the Lord does for us. In Colossians 1.15, or excuse me, in Colossians 1 verse 5, he gives us hope. Verse 12, he qualifies us. Verse 13, he rescues us and transfers us to his kingdom. Verse 15, he created all things. Verse 18, he's the head of the church. Verse 22, he reconciles us and will present us holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. And in verse 27, he lives in us. So we find joy in the midst of life because of our confidence in Christ. And look at all the things he's done for us. So let's go back to verse 11 and see what else he's done. So how many of you um, know who Audio Adrenaline is? The Forsyths ought to have their hand up, okay. Um, They have a song, Mighty Good Leader, that goes something like this. A mighty good leader is on the way. He's the only one going to come and save the day. It's all right. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. It's okay. I'm not singing it. Because a mighty good leader is on the way. Amen. Amen. So let's look at verse 11. Because verse 11 says, Strengthen with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So we're strengthened with all power. This word strengthen is where we get our word dynamite. Isn't that amazing? Dynamite. And it's paired with power to show that it's power in action. And in, in Colossians 1.29, Paul says, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power which works mightily in me. If I can borrow a popular phrase from a song, I'm TNT, I'm dynamite. That's what Christ makes us. He strengthens us with all power. According to what? According to his glorious might. And these two words are paired together because this idea of glorious is where we get our word doxology, which means the glory of God. And it's paired with might, which is a a Greek word, kratos, and it's a very strong word for force or strength. In fact, kratos is a character in Greek mythology known as the god of war. I don't know if some of you kids have heard about that. But Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So these are very strong words of the Lord. But why do we need the Lord's strength and power and might? Well, because we're going to need them to deal with difficult circumstances and difficult people. 
And that's where steadfastness and patience come in. So a few years ago, I read this book called Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage to Antarctica, and I think Pastor Scott read it as well. And it gives the account of Ernest Shackleman and Shackleton and a crew of 27 men who attempted to cross the Antarctic in 1914, get my centuries right. Their ship, called the Endurance, was trapped and crushed by ice. And this book gives the first-hand account of how they spent time drifting on ice packs, avoiding attacks by sea leopards. That doesn't happen often. They had to kill their dogs they could no longer feed. They had to amputate a crew member's foot with no medicine, and they they suffered hunger and sickness. And in the review that I, I read about this book, it says, this book highlights their extraordinarily indefatigability. <laughs> what a good word. Indefatigability, I learned something. It means tireless determination. And it says, and their lasting civility toward one another in a very difficult situation. You see, this is perseverance and patience. So to endure difficult circumstances, we're going to need perseverance. And that's what it talks about in verse 11. Perseverance, or some translations, is steadfastness, and it means to abide under. It's a patient endurance. It's a temper which does not easily succumb to suffering. It's patient endurance under trials that perfects Christian character. I'm reminded of the song by Queen, Under Pressure. It says, pressure pushing down on me, pressure down on you, no man asks for, right? Who asks for pressure? We don't ask for it. But James 1.4 says, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be complete, perfect, and lacking nothing. And this is a verse that I tend to pray often, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So if you can remember the word, indefatigability, hopefully you can remember the point. To endure difficult people, we're going to need patience, which means long-suffering or long-temper, and it's a restraint that does not hastily retaliate a wrong. Colossians 3.12 says this, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, things we need in dealing with difficult people. Colossians 4.2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Boy, in today's culture, we need a dose of patience, don't we? Whew. So that's civility. And I've been walking around the house singing this song. (laughs) A little patience. You need a little patience. Yeah, just a little patience. (laughs) The kids are sick of it, especially when I sing it in a high voice. Okay. So let's look at verse 12 to see what else he has done for us. And we're almost done. He's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He's qualified us. Basically, to to become qualified, it it means to be made sufficient. So, by a show of hands, how many of you have a driver's license? Okay, most of us. 
Congrats to Rachel Bradley, just got her permit, by the way. So in order to obtain a license, we had to take a test by a qualified individual or a governing body. And then once we completed the requirements, we were deemed qualified to operate a vehicle. You see, these qualifications came from someone else who was qualified. But the same holds true for our salvation. Listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. It says, Such is the confidence we have toward God through Christ, not that we are adequate in ourselves so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate. So here we see that God qualified us to what? To share which means to share in a part of, of something good. It's, it's kind of like when we go out to the restaurant. Not everybody wants a dessert, but we order a dessert, and they bring it to the table, and they may bring multiple spoons or forks, and we all eat off of it, right? Because we're sharing that together. We're all getting a piece of something good. That's what it's like with Christ. We get to share an inheritance. So let's look at this word inheritance. Now, when I first started looking, studying this word, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. The word here is inheritance that was obtained by a lot. So we see this idea of lot in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, and it says, And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and when he was added to the eleven apostles. Not what I thought. So let's apply this to our salvation. So I I suppose there's a couple of ways of looking at it. One would be that a lot has been cast and a lot of salvation has fallen on us. Or, maybe more simply, lots were cast, we won, based on a predetermined outcome, not by chance. Wow, isn't that cool? Our salvation is guaranteed. But then we also see what we expect in an inheritance, and that's the possessions we'll receive when Christ returns. So it's not uncommon for families to get together and read the will. I've never been a part of that, but a guy at work was here back in the, in the, in the summer where they got together and read the will, and they'll gather as a family, and someone will read through the distribution of the assets, and everyone gets there an inherited portion Colossians 3.24 speaks of that when it says, knowing that it is from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says, we'll obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. So we're qualified to share in the inheritance with the saints in light. The word light is where we get our word phos. We get our word phosphorus, mean light bearing. You know, for light to be useful, there has to be a light receptor, which is our eye. So if our eye is damaged or absent, it's light's useless. You see, natural man, the unregenerate man, is incapable of receiving spiritual light and lack the capacity for spiritual things. But... The good news is, believers are called sons of light, meaning Christ opens our eyes and we believe the word of truth, the gospel, because we see that happen in 
the church in Colossae, it says that they believe the word of truth, the gospel. 1 John 1.5 says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. So, if God is light, and we can see and believe the light of the gospel, then believers will be part of the kingdom of light, God's kingdom, with all the other saints. So this should give us cause for great joy. Just just lays it out on all the good things the Lord has done for us. You know, we're patiently waiting, but we've been called to serve him, follow him, keep a watch out for him. So let's do that. 2024, let's love Jesus. Then let's pray for each other that we would truly know Jesus, that we would live right, we'd find joy. So let me pray that for us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to to, to look at your word. And And I actually pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we could walk in a manner worthy of you, that we could please you in all things, that we could bear fruit in every good work, that we would increase in the knowledge of who you are. Lord, would you give us your strength and your power and your might so that we can attain steadfastness and patience as we, as we deal with difficult circumstances and difficult people. And then, Lord, thank you for qualifying us to share in the inheritance the fact that you chose us for salvation and you're going to hold us tight and you're going to keep us and we get to be with you in your kingdom, the kingdom of light. It gives us great hope. Thank you. So I pray that we would go forth this year and that we would let our light so shine before men that they would see you and give you glory, that we would be light-bearing instruments for you. So we commit ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.